The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. I want to welcome all who are gathered here in the name of Jesus. Our text this morning will be from Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And today we pray for ears to hear. And we pray for hearts to follow. And God, I pray for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of Jesus, your word to us, we pray. Amen. You are what you love. We've been saying this, this whole sermon series. It's not so much that you are what you think, although it's important how you think. It's not so much you are what you believe, although that's very important. But the primary thing that probably drives most human beings is their desire, what they love. And we've been talking over, Brett and I have been talking over the past few weeks about the practices that form our desires. Not only practices here when we gather on Sunday mornings and when we gather as Christian worship practices, but practices in the world. There are practices that we're unaware of that's shaping us and molding what we love, what we desire. And to be honest with you, there's probably no greater system of formation in the contemporary world than our economic arrangement. There's probably no greater thing or power that is forming you than the economy and our consumer economy. In fact, I would argue most every decision you make is an economic decision. You think, well, not every decision. You got up, you decided to come to church this morning. I doubt many of you walked. And even if you did, that was an economic decision, right? You drove your car, you took gas. Most decisions you make are economic decisions. And one commentator, cultural commentator, says this. It's a pretty strong statement. He says, consumer culture is one of the most powerful systems of formation in the contemporary world, arguably more powerful than Christianity. In fact, other commentators say 
it may be, consumer culture may be the greatest threat to Christian discipleship in the contemporary world. And so, when he says it's arguably one of the most powerful systems of formation, this is what he means, I think. Is that we depend on the economy for our lives. If you, to eat, you have to have a job. Most of us in this room have a job. And if we don't have a job, and we're at that age where we need a job, life's pretty rough. We depend on the economy to grow and succeed for our retirement and for our future. We need income. We think about the way we invest our money and our treasure and our resources. And when the housing market busts and you paid one price for your house and the, the value of your house tanked, made it tough. In fact, we all depend on the economy for our lives because when the economy's not going well, people suffer. However, as much as we depend on this economy, the system that we depend on, it needs you to consume. It needs you to consume in order to keep going and to grow. And that's what we mean by a consumer culture. Now, consuming is a natural thing. We need to consume to live. I mean, the things that we need to live, we need to eat, you know, we need uh, to rest, we need to clothe ourselves. Consuming is not a bad thing. In fact, it's not even bad to want things. But here's what I'm coming to recognize. That it's an increasingly more difficult to distinguish between what we want and what we need. In other words, it's difficult to distinguish or to determine what's enough. That's a tough question. What's enough? My teammate in Uganda, when she was educating her young son, she had this worksheet. And you've probably seen these little worksheets. It, it says on the worksheets, it's a want and needs worksheet, right? And so there were several pictures of things, and she had to, her son had to draw a line from the picture to the want side or to the need side. And as she was looking over and, and going over the, the sheet with him, she noticed that on the sheet, he put shoes. He had, there, was a, there was a drawing of shoes, and he put it on the want side. And of course, the curriculum says it's a need. And my teammate she said, oh, honey, I see you put the shoes on the want side. Shouldn't it go on the need side? She goes, no, Mom, it goes on the want side. Are you sure about that? Are you sure it doesn't go on the need side? I mean, don't we need shoes? We need shoes. And her son responded this way. He said, 
Mom, now remember, they live in Uganda. He says, Mom, we don't need shoes. I have lots of friends that don't have shoes. And Sarah, my teammate, went, huh, I guess he's right. But it raises this question about what we need and what we want, because I, I actually have this conversation with my students. I introduce the, this conversation about what's enough, right? And they usually go to, well, what's enough is what we need, and then the rest is just wants. And I go, okay, let's do this. Let's put it up on the, on the blackboard. We put wants and we put needs, and we start listing those things. And, of course, the first few things that they list is we need food. We need shelter. All right, we need something to drink. We need water, right? And there's the basic things that we need. And I ask, well, do we need shoes? And somebody says, well, yeah, in Oklahoma, you need shoes in the winter. It's cold. And then we get to a few other things like, uh, do you need, a, you need a cell phone? No, 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 we don't need a cell phone. Pretty soon, students go, well. I said, well, okay, well, well, maybe not a cell phone. Do you need some way to communicate? Yes, we need some way to communicate. Okay, fair enough. What about a computer? Do you need a computer? No, we don't need a computer. Are you sure about that? No, you don't need a computer to survive. I go, I'm not talking about surviving. I'm talking about what you need to live in the world you live in. Let's don't talk about, like, living in the jungle. Let's talk about the real world where we live. What do you need? And there's an argument that happens between the students. Do we need a computer? And I say, where are you guys sitting right now? At Oklahoma Christian. You're a student at Oklahoma Christian. Do you need a computer to be a student at Oklahoma Christian? And they all go, yeah. You can't survive at Oklahoma Christian without a computer. And then we start saying, what about, what about a car? Do you need a car? No, you don't need a car. And somebody said, well, how are you going to get to work? Well, you can walk. And they say, come on. It's not practical if you've got to walk 15 miles. Well, you don't need a car if there's public transportation. I go, how is public transportation in Oklahoma? <laughs> then everybody goes, well, you need a car or a bike or something. And then we get into the real tricky stuff. Like, what about health care? I'm not just talking about insurance. I'm talking about the whole thing. Because then we're actually talk, getting back to surviving. If you get cancer at the age of three. And I go through that exercise not to get into a debate about needs and wants, but to say it's increasingly more difficult to distinguish between what we want and what we need. It's not an easy task. In fact, one person says this, another commentator says, 20 years ago, we didn't need personal computers and cell phones. Now we do. 20 years from now, 
We will possess things out of necessity that we haven't the faintest idea of desiring today. Have you ever thought about how did you ever get anywhere without your phone? Have you ever thought that? You remember those times? How did you ever know anybody's phone number? Oh, yeah, the yellow pages, which now we just get and throw away. Think about all the things that you need now that 20 years ago you didn't even know existed. And theoretically, if I could say this, it's the market's job to provide our needs. So that's why we go into business to provide a service or a need if you're in a business. But let me say this. I would argue this, and I'm not, this is not a critique of anybody's individual business. I'm talking about the whole system. The whole system, it cannot afford to satisfy your need. It needs you to need. Does that make sense? The whole system needs you to need. In other words, we can talk all day long about what's enough and what's meant to be content, but Walmart is not interested in saying, that's enough for you. This Christmas, Amazon is not going to say, are you spending a little too much? In fact, in order to grow the economy, in order for things to get better for all of us, we not only need to continue to produce products, but the whole economy needs to continue to produce desire in you. I'll pick on the things that I like so you're not offended. I have an iPhone. Apple doesn't want me to be content with whatever year and style this phone is. So when Apple makes a commercial, they sometimes tell me about the phone, but the, but the commercials are really not about information. They're about generating and producing desire. Oh, man, that phone looks good. I got to have that phone. I like Nike, but Nike rarely ever tells me anything about their shoes. It's not like they're just saying, hey, they're comfortable, they fit. You know, they, they, I, mean, I don't even know what Nike would tell you. But they have a commercial of Russell Westbrook and a fighter jet. And it's like he's taking off from the free throw line. And all you see is the swoosh. And after that, all I want is Nike shoes. Nike may not be your thing, but you know what I'm talking about. You've seen the commercials like, ah, oh, that's what I want. I want a pair of those. I want some of that. Or I noticed just the other day there's a, a toothpaste commercial. Have you ever noticed, even in toothpaste commercials, the people in the commercial are gorgeous. And the houses they live in are pristine and spectacular. 
you're never going to see a toothpaste commercial with someone in a trailer park. They're selling soap for your mouth. But who wants what they already have? So the people and the places they live have to look as good or better than you think you look in the places you live. In order if you're going to bring that into your house. You're not going to buy what you already have. And so the goal is to consume. We're coming up on a holiday, maybe the, one of the biggest holidays of the year. No, I'm not talking about Thanksgiving. I'm talking about the day after Thanksgiving. Yes, can't wait. That day is called what? Everybody knows it. Where you hear the crazy stories of people staying up and stores opening at midnight and then they actually start opening on Thanksgiving Day so we can go in and shop or get something online. It's probably going to increasingly be more online. And you know why it's called Black Friday? It's actually not called Black Friday because it's like this dark, evil thing, right? It's like, dun, 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 Black Friday. This is, reflects the, the awfulness of who we are as consumers. It's actually called Black Friday. It's an economic term because on Black Friday, it's when businesses go into the black. So if you took up all of what they did over the whole year and you took up the cost of paying employees and insurance and infrastructure and all that, and all that went to just paying their expenses, they don't make money until November. And so by Black Friday, oh, buddy, that's when the profits come in. They need you to shop. They don't care how much debt you go into. Now, there's this big push not to go into debt, but by the way, and I'm, talk, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about this faceless industry. They don't care about your debt. Stock prices only go up the more debt you get into, the more you spend. You, it can't afford for you to be content. The whole system can't afford for you to be content. It can't afford for you to be satisfied. It needs you to desire. Therefore, arguably, it's one of the most powerful systems of formation in the contemporary world. Well, when we come to our text today, and we come to God's table, we usually don't think about God's table in this way, but I want to propose, I want to suggest that we think about God's table as a different vision or a different economy. That Christians get a different vision of how stuff in the economy works in the kingdom of God. So our text, let me read it to you again. It says this from Matthew 26, verse 26. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him, he says, drink from it, all of you. Now, I want to make four moves 
that the economy of God happens at Jesus' table. And it comes out of this text. The first is, he took. The second is, he gave thanks. The third is, he broke. The fourth is, he gave. Jesus, he took the bread. Jesus at the Lord's table, he takes the most common stuff of life, bread and wine, which wine in Jesus' day was the primary drink. He takes the thing that every time they sit down, there's bread and there's wine at the table. He takes the most basic stuff of life and he transforms it into himself. And I have to think that when he does this, it's not just the bread and the wine on Sunday morning, but every time the disciples eat bread and wine, which will be throughout the week, they're going to go, this is my body. He takes the stuff that we need to consume, that we have to consume to live, and he identifies with it and he makes it himself. This is my body. He takes the very stuff of life and he transforms it to his own ends. And so when we eat bread and we drink the cup, we're not just desiring bread in the cup, we're desiring God himself. The very things that we desire, and I know this is tempting. It's probably bad to mention lunch at church. But you're all hungry, and eventually you're going to really, really want food if you don't already want it now. Jesus takes the most basic food, the thing that we crave the most, and he turns it into himself. And that's who we're supposed to crave. Augustine says this about the stuff of life. He goes, things are, to be in, things are to be used. Only God is to be enjoyed. So will you enjoy the bread and the cup? We're enjoying God. It reshapes the way we think about our stuff. Things are to be used in order to enjoy God. Can you imagine if we started living that way? Things are to be used in order to enjoy God. He gave thanks. Thankful, thankfulness is a response to insatiability. One of the ways that a consumer culture sustains insatiability is by invoking discontentment. This one's not good enough. And typically, nobody wants what they already have. So producers and marketers must create discontentment in order to arouse desire. But thankfulness is a response driven by contentment. Thankfulness, when you're thankful, says, I'm content. And when Jesus gives thanks for the bread, and when Christians offer thanks in the Lord's Supper, it is recognitions that 
desires can be satisfied and that God satisfies. In fact, one of the names we have for this meal, we call it Lord's Supper or Communion, but it's often called in the Christian tradition, it's called Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word and thanksgiving. The, the, the Eucharist meal, it's the Thanksgiving meal. So when we take this meal, this is a meal where we say thanks to God. You satisfy. Thanks for satisfying us. You've given us enough. It is a practice of contentment which recognizes that in God's economic order, desires can and will be satisfied. The Eucharist narrative does not portray humans as consumers with insatiable desires, but as recipients of God's good gifts that satiate. And God's gifts not only make life possible, but they make life full. He broke. Oftentimes we think about the bread on the table and associate it with Jesus' broken body. But I think in Matthew, it's not just Jesus' broken body that we associate it with, but it's supposed to cue us back into an earlier story. So in Matthew 14, it says this, beginning in verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place. And it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. But Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring those five loaves and two fish to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves, hear this language, and he took the five loaves and he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. And then he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to all the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. Do you hear the same language? That he took the loaves, he looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave. And it says that everyone was satisfied. And one of the things that I think culture does that forms us and why we desire and we're not content and we want more is because it convinces us there's scarcity in the world. There's just not enough. You don't have enough. You better get enough. You better get more. And in God's economy, he takes the loaves and the, the fish. And after 5,000 men have eaten, there are 12 baskets of broken pieces left. There is an abundance. And the table is a practice that intends to reorder our desire that rightly corresponds to God's provision and God's abundance in the world. He gave thanks. I mean, uh, he, he gave. That's the last one.
He took, he gave thanks, he broke, he gave. God gives us bread for our good. And therefore, because he's given us bread for our good, we should give to others. In fact, that's the intention, right? That we give this bread to God, but he first gave it to us. And the appropriate response is not that we get bread in order to give it back to God, is that God gives us bread, and it's for the good of creation. It's for the good of us. God provides life and food for our own well-being. And so when we receive bread, when we receive stuff in the world, the only appropriate response to God is to share it with others. In fact, this is actually a practice that we do. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It would seem kind of odd if, as we come to the table, as we will in a moment, that everybody just started shoving as much food into their mouth, these crackers, as much of the bread into their mouth, and we started just downing all of these little cups. It'd be odd. I mean, our children do it, but we say, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Why do we ask them not to do that? Because we want to make sure there's enough for everybody. this practice at the table is that we come and even when there's a little bit left do you take the very last piece no it doesn't make sense to take the very last piece does it because just in case there's one more person you take off the tiniest little bit that's enough jesus takes he takes the stuff of our lives and he transforms them towards his own ends, that this stuff directs us towards him. That our stuff shouldn't be ends in themselves, but they should be means to love God. Two, he gives thanks for this bread. And the appropriate response to discontentment, when you're thankful, you're content. He breaks it. In fact, he keeps breaking it. He takes our little bit and he breaks it and he breaks it and there's abundance. There's enough to satisfy. And then he takes it and he gives it away. Because the only appropriate thing to do in God's kingdom with all the bread is to share it. This practice I want you to think about. We don't usually think about it in this way, but I want to encourage you, when you come and eat, Think about the economic implications for your life. It's a transformative practice that's intended to reshape your desire away from discontentment and insatiability and consumerism towards God and contentment, satisfaction, and others. This is God's table. This is God's economy. Welcome to the table of the Lord.